Welcome back to the Anglo-Boer War podcast with me, your host, Des Latham. It's approaching Christmas 1900, but there's no champagne for Broadwood, who is based in Rustenburg, west of Pretoria. That's because the Boers first ransacked his supply convoy, then attacked General Clemens in the Michalisburg. General Coeurs de la Rey was largely responsible for both upsets, along with Smuts and Bayers. The battle at Noitgedacht had been short and brutal with hand-to-hand combat on the side of a mountain over a thousand feet high. By the end, more than 100 British casualties were reported, 200 more were prisoners, and General Clements had retreated to Pretoria. As the long sunny days of summer in South Africa approached 25th of December, in Cape Town, the High Commissioner, Alfred Milner, was growing concerned about what he called the screamers. These were the Liberals who were mobilising sentiment against the British actions in South Africa, with the first reports beginning to filter across the globe about the treatment of Boer women and children. We're going to see how first stories garnered sympathy and eventually, by mid-1901, full-scale criticism of British policy. The bitterness that this era evokes to this day is extraordinary but understandable. I'll return to this in the months to come, but this podcast, as a pre-Christmas special, begins with Lord Milner sitting in Cape Town. For months after the disaster we heard about last week at Noitgedacht in the Michalisburg Mountains west of Pretoria, Lord Milner was sleeping outside. Cape Town has a notorious wind called the Cape Doctor, which blasts in from the southeast in summer and can actually blow people off their feet. It was the 16th of December when the doctor arrived in Cape Town, bullying the palm trees, rolling pebbles across his grass tennis court, causing Milner's roof to drum like the devil's fingers were running along the slates. Lord Milner was a great believer in the stiff upper lip, and when word came of the terrible defeat by General Clements in Michalisburg, he dutifully stiffened. He had already been thrown somewhat by the other reports reaching him earlier in December about two separate Boer commandos, which had actually begun to invade the Cape. While we've heard about General Christian de Wet's botched attempt to enter the Cape and how that was scotched by bad weather, the wily general, though, had achieved part of his aim. Remember, I explained how he'd moved north, away from the Orange River, which is the boundary between the Orange Free State and the Cape, hoping that two other Boer divisions he'd sent south would be free to move. That was because the British were infatuated by De Wet and wanted him out of the way. So they duly marched and rode north, chasing their nemesis, thus leaving the area to the south open for General Kritzinger and Judge Herzog. After cutting up Brabant's horse, the mounted infantry unit, Kritzinger headed across the Orange River into the Cape on the 16th of December with 700 burghers. The 16th of December, as we know, is a symbolic date in the Boer calendar called the Day of the Covenant. Way back in 1838, the Boers had survived an attack by Isizulu impis outside modern-day Freyheit at a place called Blood River. The God-fearing and deeply religious leadership had implored God to save them from the large Zulu army bearing down on the small group of Boers that day. They somehow survived the attack, and from then on, the 16th of December was regarded as a special day, the Day of the Covenant. The river was renamed Blood River partly because the water ran red with the blood of the doomed Zulu warriors who attacked the Boer lager. Today, it's morphed from the Day of the Covenant to the Day of the Vow, and finally, in the modern era, it's called the Day of Reconciliation. 
Uh, it was no coincidence that the African National Congress launched its armed wing called Mkonto Siswe on the 16th of December 1961. So it was then on the 16th of December 1900 that General P.H. Kritzinger attacked the Cape. On the same day, Judge Herzog also crossed into the Cape with 1,000 well-armed and equipped men riding fast across the semi-desert Karoo. They targeted the half-forgotten towns along the railway line to Cape Town, like Daar and Noport. Lord Roberts was already wending his way back to Britain. He had already handed over the reins to Lord Kitchener, who is now the supreme commander of all British troops in South Africa. The invasion shocked Lord Milner sitting in Cape Town, facing the high winds of the Cape Doctor. He was incensed that the Cape Afrikaners, who so far had not risen in open revolt, were providing tacit support for these invaders in a number of ways. They would light signal fires at night to warn farms about British soldiers on the move, or would send messages by horse riders in the night, a bit like Paul Revere, as the youngsters who conducted these missions were full of the delights of youth and toughened by life on the felt. Milner realized that these rebels could fan out in the vast expanse of the Cape Karoo territories and even threaten the larger towns. Remember, the Cape Afrikaners were in the majority in this territory, and had they wanted to, they could have risen in revolt at any time to cause further problems for the British. And the further south these rebels reached, closer and closer to Cape Town, the more strident Milner's demands for the abandonment of the Cape self-governing territory status and the arming of loyalists. Students of political science and history believe, had he achieved this, the Cape Afrikaners would definitely have risen in revolt. It was only because they had a modicum of self-rule that they remained passive as their comrades to the north in the Free State and Transvaal continued their guerrilla war. The Cape British began to organize town militia as they waited the arrival of these two rebel commandos, and martial law was declared in 14 districts. While the Boers' kinsmen were actually less ready than before to join the active revolt, they did provide these invaders with food, water, protection and intelligence. These jarring events in the Cape were not the only shocks the British were experiencing. The defeat at Neuchedacht had shaken the British army. However, there were other areas also feeling the brunt of a renewed Boer campaign. In the eastern Transvaal, for example, garrisons near the Natal border around Volksrust were being constantly harassed under the order of General Louis Boerter. Freyheit, so close to Blood River, was the scene of a major attack on the 11th and 12th of December. Every outlying British post was in real danger of being targeted by the Boers. This happened on the 28th of December at Helvetia, which is between Machadadorp in the eastern Transvaal and Leidenburg, when a British garrison was overrun with a loss of 200 men. Such was the succession of disasters which marked the second Christmas of the war and the last days of the 19th century, the first days of the 20th. A detached observer writes Rain Kruger in Goodbye Dolly Gray, could well wonder what precisely the expenditure of thousands of casualties and millions in money had achieved over the past year. What was also shocking for the military establishment was the death rate of British troops had hardly altered. The guerrilla war had exacted almost the same number of casualties reported during the battles of Black Week the previous December. Add to this the fact that the Cape was now under invasion, the Free State and Transvaal remained untamed, and the enemy was far from being crushed. Naturally, 
the military establishment in Britain was fraught. Lord Kitchener had now formally taken over running the army. Lord Roberts was making his grand tour of South Africa, saying goodbye and visiting the grave of his only son in Ladysmith, where he'd fallen trying to save Longford's artillery guns in December 1899. At first glance, Kitchener's job seemed simple enough. He still had over 200,000 troops stationed in South Africa, and there were only an estimated 15,000 Boers still willing to fight. But half of Kitchener's men were guarding the long lines of communication. Others were marching between garrisons, trying to shore up the defences, then marching back again when others were attacked. There was the problem of constant wastage, which occurs in a campaign of this sort. As Napoleon had found when he indulged in the attack on Moscow, he crossed the Niemann River with 310,000 troops, but only 95,000 reached the Russian capital. Kitchener had another problem, a dearth of men who really mattered in a guerrilla war. Men who were mobile, who could live on horseback, in the saddle, sleep rough, live on bully beef and biscuits, and more importantly, endure South Africa's climate. What had taken place in the British Army so far was really a revolution, and put paid to the long history of the cavalry, for example. They had been replaced by the mounted infantry, a precursor to the future forces of the 20th century, the parachute regiments, the airborne attack units, the highly mobile commandos, as well as special forces. The shock tactics of previous wars, where serried ranks of men would line up and fire volleys at each other, was over. Furthermore, the last of the infantry reserves had gone to South Africa months before, leaving only raw recruits in England. The war office had balked at Kitchener's initial request for fresh yeoman regiments, those made up of men from various towns and city suburbs back in the UK. So the British Empire was forced to turn to their colonies for assistance. The new war had caught Britain as unprepared as it had been for the start of the Boer War, and London asked its colonies for help. While Canada had been prepared previously, now the political situation in that country was not conducive and the Prime Minister refused to send new troops to South Africa. Australia and New Zealand were the only colonies that agreed, and in particular the Australians. But the next useful reinforcement detail from the Aussies was months away, and Kitchener faced a number of serious problems in December 1900. So on the 11th of December, the British Secretary for War, Mr Broderick, asked Parliament for more money to fight the Boers, justifying the request through the lens of history. For example, he said, when the Spanish tried to curb an uprising in Cuba, it was forced to send 250,000 soldiers to the island in order to fight fewer than 40,000 rebels. So too, the United States, which had sent 100,000 men to the Philippines to quell a rebellion there at the turn of the century. Parliament voted to provide the British army with more money, and the yeoman brigades were resuscitated, with recruits lining up at 51 depots around England after hearing of the offer of a five shillings a day pay rate. That upset the regular troops, however, as they were only earning one shilling. Inside South Africa, Lord Baden-Powell was also busy raising what became known as the South African Constabulary. Kitchener spent weeks travelling around South Africa, partly to personally lead the fight against the invading Boers in the Cape, but also to drive the loafers and hangers-on who were hiding in the hundreds in their towns around the country back to active service. He concentrated his garrisons too, deciding that the British could not control each and every town and village and pooled his strength at strategic locations. 
But Lord Roberts had created a real problem for Kitchener. The outgoing commander had convinced the politicians that he had secured victory so Kitchener could never wind up the machinery of war to the same level as had been achieved in 1899. He was also prepared for less than an unconditional surrender by the Boers, something that Lord Milner, the Cape Commissioner, refused to accept. Two things emerged from this clash. Firstly and obviously, Milner and Kitchener were at odds with one basically an intellectual clerk and the other a professional soldier. These two types of people hardly ever get along anyway. The second was the emergence of a group of Boers who believed they needed to negotiate with their own kin in order to get the guerrilla war to end. For some of these, it was a fatal decision. These Boers formed themselves into a new organization called the Burger Peace Committee, which held a conference in Pretoria on 21st December 1900. Kitchener was present and addressed these men, saying he didn't believe in an unconditional surrender and provided a genuinely sympathetic approach. He also then issued a proclamation to the Boers in the field, promising that those voluntarily surrendering would be allowed to live with their families in government camps until the war permitted a safe return to their homes. All stock could be brought with them, but those that could not would be bought by the British government at market rates. To speed up the communication of this proclamation, some Boer members of the Burger Peace Committee offered to ride out to the camps of the rebels personally in order to explain the new position. For many, it would be their last ride. Their reception was severe, as generals like Custalare, Jan Smuts, Louis Boerter, Christian de Vett, to mention a few, regarded these men as traitors and cowards. There were three types of punishment meted out to these burghers. They were fined in some cases, in others they were imprisoned by the Boers, and in a few they were executed. For example, in the Transvaal, the president of the peace committee reached Ben Fulun's lager in the northeast, where he was promptly tried and then executed for high treason. And in the Free State, two other members of the committee were court-martialed at Christian de Vett's lager and sentenced to death. That was commuted when rank-and-file Boers complained to de Vett, but reports surfaced weeks later that the men had been flogged and then shot by General Frunemann, de Vett's 2IC. This was never confirmed, but did put a damper on future expeditions by the Burger Peace Committee. However, it was partly through the committee's advice that Kitchener now accelerated Lord Roberts's farm-burning campaign. This was perhaps the biggest blunder of his career, and definitely his biggest blunder of the Anglo-Boer War. The scorched earth policy had begun under Roberts, and the burghers felt that it would hasten the end of the war if introduced more broadly. So far, the amount of devastation was not total. This was to change rapidly. One of the incidental effects had been to leave the damaged homesteads open to marauding African groups, which in turn destabilized the countryside still further, not to mention how it actually increased Boer motivation to fight. The unofficial and perceived humane act of herding the Boer women and children and their black workers into camps now became an official internment policy. Kitchener wrote a memo to his officers, part of which read, this, of course, has been pointed out by surrendered burghers, who are anxious to finish the war as the most effective method of limiting the endurance of the guerrillas, as the men and women left on farms, if disloyal, willingly supply burghers, if loyal, dare not refuse to do so. They were damned if they supported the Boers, and damned if they didn't. 
So naturally, Kitchener thought to speed up the end of this war by destroying the Boers' support in the field while protecting women and children was a logical act. But he forgot one important point. When you herd tens of thousands of people together, you create a perfect place for disease. By the time this policy was over, 26,000 Boer women and children would be dead. No careful thought had been given to the implications for herding people into camps. No proper sanitation was created. No doctors were available. No proper water. The camps were created on a military, not a civilian design. The homesteads that were emptied also had tens of thousands of black workers. Some of these people were brought into adjacent camps, but most were left to fend for themselves. This created another flood of refugees and displaced people who moved about the countryside at the same time, neither Boer nor British supporters, they were buffeted and suffered the consequences. Because these internment camps led to people from around South Africa being crammed into a single area, they became known as concentration camps. A new name had emerged and one which was inextricably linked later to the Nazis and Adolf Hitler. In fact, when the British ambassador in Berlin before World War II protested against the Nazi camps to Goering, he was rebuffed. Goering apparently took out an encyclopedia and looked up the entry called Concentration Camps. The entry read, first used by the British in South Africa, which Goering said could not be bad because the British invented it. While the two types of concentration camps were obviously different, it was a telling reminder before that war. In 1900, there was an outcry from liberals in Britain, but Kitchener didn't care. He penned a letter to Broderick, which pointedly described the Boers as uncivilized Afrikaner savages with a thin white veneer. He also described the Boer women in the camps who would, he said, slap their protruding bellies and shout, when all our men are gone, these little car keys will fight you, and is a type of savage produced by generations of a wild and lonely life. This attitude was one which characterized most British officers and many of the enlisted men in the army. As the next few months unfolded, it was to lead to bitterness. Well, sorry to end this week on such a negative note. It's almost Christmas after all, but this is the war. And throughout the ages, those in conflicts have used religious holidays to commit egregious acts on their enemies. And South Africa would be no different. Well, with that, I must end for this week. I hope and wish you all a peaceful Christmas, and we'll be back on the last day of 2018, the 30th of December, for our next update. So until next week, goodbye. <laughs> O bring me terug naar jou transval, daar waar mijn saar is.